0: The following is a production of Entertainment rigging Services. Son, you know your father was a rigger, a rigger was he. Mm -hmm. Son, the shoes you have to fill are bigger, as big as can be. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Shackles, Burlap, and Lies. I'm your host, Ethan Gilson, and this is episode 30. Today, my guest is Tyler DeLong, who is a ETCP certified rigger, both arena and theater, and the uh, owner, founder, partner of DeLong Rigging Solutions. How are you doing today, Tyler?
1: Not too bad. How are you doing today?
0: Doing all right. As uh, as we're recording this, we're a day after our our last hopefully 2020 nor'easter in the Northeast with you know a foot plus of snow, so I'm I'm doing okay. Um, so like everyone, you get the first question, which is, who are you? Ah, uh, who
1: am I? Um, well, my name is Tyler DeLong. Uh, I am a dual ETCP certified rigger in both theatrical and arena rigging. I've spent most of the last decade touring. Uh, doing a lot of Broadway styles, but I've also done pretty much everything from Blue Man Group to uh, Cavaliers' Odysseo. And um, most recently, I was touring as a production stage manager for Feld Entertainment. Uh, now that we're in the pandemic world, I did what they say you shouldn't do, and I decided to start a company in the middle of a uh, recession. So that's who I am.
0: So how do you get into the industry?
1: Uh, I actually got into industry through my father. Uh, I am a legacy. Uh, My dad is also a rigger, and it's just one of those, I have a lot of memories growing up of going to visit dad at work, Uh, because I mean, he toured for 16 some odd years, and I got to tour a little bit with him before I had to start school, and then once I started school, it was just a dropping by the theater, and just sort of hooked from birth, I guess.
0: Yeah, it it there are quite a few, uh, second and third generation, uh, entertainment technicians out there. And it's, uh, certainly, a a thing where when you grow up around it, it, it offers a different perspective. You know, there are the learning curve may be not as steep because you've learned through osmosis.
1: <laughs> I mean, there's definitely something to that, uh, I mean, I like to tell people that I was sort of screwed from birth. Um, cause I mean, one of my earliest childhood memories was going to visit Dad on the road, and it was a loadout for a rock show. And Mom and I are out in the stands, and I'm just sort of looking up at the riggers on the beams, and she points at one and goes, that's your dad. Uh, I think I was like four, three or four at that point, and I've kind of known what I was going to do ever since then.
0: I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be completely honest with you right now. I think I think your joke was right there.
1: <laughs> there's, that's your that dad. Some truth to it.
0: That that is such a stereotypical joke of, hey, you see the roadie? That's your dad. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, so. How did you end up being uh, in the touring side of the business? Because I think that's not something that I've talked about with any guests really is how they they found that uh opportunity to go out on the road and that's a question that comes up a lot of the time in different social media platforms is people saying how do i get a a touring gig how do i become whether it's how do i become the board up or lighting designer for this group or the you know xyz i mean i get that question a lot i mean
1: when you're touring people always ask the road guy how do i end up on the road um, I mean, I'll tell my story, but first I want to tell you why I always tell people is wrong place, wrong time, and dumb enough to say yes. At the end of the day, that's how most people got their first tour. Just they were there, the opportunity was there, and they went, sure, I can get on the bus. Um, for me, let's see, my first touring experience was with Cavaliers Odisseo, uh, which was shortly after I got out of college. Uh, actually... Scott England, who sort of learned rigging from my father and then went out and blossomed to become quite the rigger in his own right, was the lead rigger on Cavaliers' Odysseo. And he called me because he'd heard that I just graduated and he went, hey, your dad took me out on my first tour. I'd like to take you on your first tour. So I went and uh, that was quite the experience. But that's how I started my first tour. Uh, I got into the Broadway style. Actually, that one's a pretty good story. because We were doing the tech rehearsals of How the Grinch Stole Christmas here in Bloomington, Indiana. And one night, I took the road crew out to my favorite watering hole, and we closed the place down. Um, After closing the place down, I'm friends with the manager, and we drank a little bit past last call. and Ended up getting everyone back to their hotels. Like 3.30, 4 a.m. Yeah. Well, we had an 8 a.m. call the next morning. And I made it, but none of them did. Oof. Yeah, exactly. Round 10, 30, 11, it was after coffee break. The uh, head carpenter walks in. Sunglasses, you know, clearly hung over, coffee in hand. And he looks at me. And he goes, did you make call? Yeah. Come talk to me after lunch. I was sitting there thinking he wanted to know what happened the night before because he clearly was feeling it. But when I went to talk to him, he looked at me and went, anyone who can do that that late in the night and still make an 8 a.m. call should be on the bus. I'm losing my flyman in a couple of weeks. We have to go to another show. Would you like to come replace him? And that was my first Broadway
0: style. As you said, wrong place, wrong time. Exactly. <laughs> um, had So you had mentioned you went to college. Did you go to college for uh, something within the industry or something unrelated?
1: Uh, I did go for something industry related. Uh, I have a BA in theater with concentration in technology. Um, it was one of those, when I was looking at colleges, I already kind of knew what I wanted to do, but I knew that I need to take some time to sort of develop my skill set. I knew that if I went out straight out of high school, I was going to get eaten alive. So I wanted to take that four years of learning and growing and sort of building a network so I wouldn't have to rely on, you know, dad's friends once I was working.
0: Right. So that first tour that you go on as the flyman let's talk about the the uh, the learning curve because there's certainly there's certainly an a, an amount of experience that you gain in academia and there are some people who who have the opinion that you know in our industry you should be able to just you know you go and you learn from the as you said you learn from the senior guys and they teach you everything you need to know and you just go and it's all experience based learning and that people tend to pigeonhole academia for the design side of what we do. Oh, you want to learn scenic design or costume design or lighting design? That's what you would go to college for because that's more theory. But for a roadie, for a stagehand, that's all experienced. I don't personally agree with that. I think there's a balance between both of them. There's a um, a theory component and a hands-on practical. Practical side of the thing. So, how was that learning curve of going from academia, where maybe things are slowed down a little bit, to being on the road, having you know financial implications of not making timeline, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um. Well, I mean,
1: man, you ask hard questions. One thing that I definitely will say is that there is a place for academia. Uh, Going to college and getting the degree, I want to say that it taught me a process. It taught me how to look at something, how to find the answers. It also gave me a great network that I still reach out to periodically. As far as the learning curve on my first tour, um, I'm honestly, there was a learning curve on both the ones I've mentioned so far. On Cavalia's Odysseo. To be 100% honest, I had no business being there. Uh, I mean, I knew a lot of the theory behind rigging, but it was a Cirque-style show with a whole bunch of horses to make it even more interesting. Uh, I was definitely in over my head. That being said, I've got to give credit to Scott and the other guys that were on that crew. They did a lot of on-the-job teaching. They did a lot of on-the-job hazing as well, but they did a lot of on-the-job teaching. And, I mean, that's where I learned the basics of rope access. And that's also where I got my first taste of automation, which, you know, comes into play later on in my career when I went to Blue Man Group as the automation tech. I took all the troubleshooting I learned at Cavalia and applied it to that system. As far as my first Broadway-style show goes, uh, the culture really was the learning curve for me. Just the uh, mentality of it's going to happen in this amount of time no matter what. Figure it out. Because that is not something that you saw in academia. It's not something I would experienced when I was doing Cavali. Cavali at that point in time. I think we were like 32 days from our last show in one city to our first show in the next. And that was with crews working around the clock for 32 days. There was a lot of time just because of the size of the show, whereas right. on the Broadway, it's one of those, you know, you get up, you walk into the venue at 6 a.m., you mark the floor, you get some motors hanging, you deal with your soft goods, coffee, cool, go back to it. Hopefully you're done around lunch and you've got a rehearsal sometime in the early morning or early afternoon. There's just this very strict timeline. And I mean, you walk into a theater, no two theaters are the same. And no theater in the world looks like the drawing that they give the road guy, just period. It right. doesn't happen. So you walk in and you discover, you know, there's this giant freaking column in the middle of the loading dock that none of my trust can now make the corner to get off the dock. That kind of stuff, just nothing can prepare you for that until you're actually there looking at it going, well, crap, I got to solve this problem. And I got to solve it yesterday.
0: Yep. um i I was i was thinking about your your different experiences in terms of the different styles of shows from the the you know straight broadway show um how you know when i teach all right form an actual thought and then articulate it that would be a good start um when i teach i tell people that I, I find, or my opinion is, gravity is the same no matter what venue you're in. That to me, rigging is rigging. And uh, there are times I question the separation of the ETCP certification into two venues, to say. Now, I certainly understand it, and I'm not saying we shouldn't have two of them. But I, I, I go through the thought process, the thought experiment of why do we have different ones Especially over the last 15, 20 years where we had this conversion. So you mentioned Broadway show and trust. And so I think there are a lot of uh, the perception is a lot of people who go to college for theater come out of it and maybe they've never touched trust and motors. Maybe, and you're starting to see this now that more schools are having motorized rigging systems, whether it's Prodigy, Clancy, PowerLift, whatever it is, Vortex. Um you're starting to see more that automation is now more part of curriculums in schools because it's what we're using. But did you have that challenge of having to learn a new set of tools in the Broadway stuff that you weren't exposed to in college? Um,
1: yes, but it's not going to be an answer you expect truck loading. The fine art of loading a truck is something that they do not teach in college. That, I mean, when I was uh, working with Feld as a production stage manager, that was one of my important questions while I was hiring someone is a, have you ever packed a truck before? Because it's just not something you can teach. Uh, As far as the rigging side goes, I mean, honestly, a single purchase system is a single purchase system. Every single one has its own idiosyncrasies, but that's what you have the house flyman there to tell you, you know, don't use Batten 23 because it sticks. But at the end of the day, the technology there is the same. As far as like using motors and that kind of stuff. I kind of had an unfair advantage because when I was in college, I also was doing my apprenticeship with the IOTC local in Bloomington. So I was already working with roadshows as they came through. I was already learning, you know, motor distribution and power and all that stuff. But I was learning it on the job while I was going to school.
0: And that's a, a similarity that you and I have. I was fortunate that I started working for the lighting company, the summer after my freshman year of college. So for the last three years or the next three years, I was working part-time during the school semester uh, and full-time during the summer for a lighting company doing a lot of corporate industrial stuff, a lot of high-end social things. So this is the the early to mid-90s. The school, I was learning a lot about theory and a lot of the traditional methods at work, I was getting to play with the new technology, like moving lights. Um, the very first moving light console that I got to program was a Martin 2308, which... Oh, you're ever, yourself there. I know. Um, it, And it, it, it's Hawks. I mean, it's like... I'm trying to, to use a very broad term. It's like it going from a hog for an MA to a two-scene preset. I mean, it's really that poor of a controller that basically you set up a whole bunch of scenes and it would loop the scenes together. And then you'd go from the 2308 to the 2302, which was the computer-based controller. But that's also where you learned little tricks like if a control of movement was a XY grid. And you had your little round dot, which was the center of the light, and you moved it around your your grid. And at that time, it was still mostly scanners or lights that had mirrors, which did mm-hmm. the you know movement. Moving heads were still kind of restricted to very light. Um, you started getting a few others out there in the mid '90s, but it was the late '90s where the the Mac 500s came out. The Mac 600s, where moving heads really became more uh got more market saturation but anyways on the programming so how do you do a circle on a square grid and (laughs) so you learn the tricks where if you do the four corners of the circle or let's say eight points so you do the corners and the mids of the sides and then you tweak your speed so you're it's doing an endless loop between all those eight points but you tweak the speed it can never reach the corners so it starts cutting them off Mm -hmm. You start playing with things like, okay, so now I want this mirror to do a circle. Maybe I need 12 points instead of eight. Or you learn these tricks about how to to do it. Um, And as I said, you're not learning that in the the academic situation, because maybe they don't have the budget for a show to do that stuff. Um, So ultimately what I'm saying is, if you're in school or you're going to go to university or college for design, find a local company in your portion of the industry, whether it's scenic or lighting, or if it's rigging, see if you can find a local rigging company and freelance for them. Get that quote unquote real world experience at the same time that you're getting your education because. Each one has something that the other can't provide. Oh, absolutely. Um, Good.
1: Oh, I was about to say absolutely. I mean, I am very thankful for my degree and the things I learned in class. But at the end of the day, I've made my career out of the things that I learned outside the classroom. Uh, I mean, I learned a lot working in the shop as a paid employee of the shop for the theater department. I also was working as an electrician for the School of Music. And I was working as overhire for the IA local. And just all that hands-on stuff is where I started to really develop as a technician. Um, granted, sometimes that got me into trouble when I'd skip class to go work. Yeah. But in four years, I only had one professor give me a whole lot of grief about that. And at the end of the day, it was – actually, it's a pretty good story. It was a American literature course. And at the beginning of every semester, I always tell my professors, hey, I'm already working in the industry I'm going to school for. I know what your policy is, but will you work with me because I'm going to miss class? And almost every professor went, yeah, just don't miss test days. Keep me in the loop. We're good. Well, I had a American literature class where the professor sent me an email saying, come to my office hours. So I went And she just sort of looked at me and went, you're missing too much class. You need to be in my class. You need to drop it. Well, it's already past the date to drop it without taking an F, so that wasn't going to happen. And I just looked at her. I was like, well, you understand that I'm working within my industry. I'm working on the thing I'm going to school for. And she went, yes, I understand, but my class is important. And without missing a beat, I looked at her and I pulled a Mark Twain quote out of thin air And that's that I've never let my schooling get in the way of my education. And she looked at me and went, did you just quote Mark Twain at me? (laughs) Yes. Yes, I did, ma'am. We're good. Go away. I'll see you on test days. Nice. Yeah. But I mean, skipping class is definitely not something you should be doing if you're going to school for theater. But you need to find that balance of making sure that you're out there, you're learning. And in my opinion, theater is one of the few places where you still have sort of a, a master and apprentice type situation for being able to learn. You learn from the older people. They've been there. They know the tricks. They can teach you so much faster and easier than you can learn in a classroom setting, in my opinion.
0: There's also, whether again, this is perception or not, um, you tend to see within theater a more structured hierarchy within the labor force. And what I mean by that is you have a master electrician. You usually have an assistant master electrician in a touring application. You might have a pair of deck electricians who are below those two. Um, In the, you tend to, to perceive that on the concert touring side, things are streamlined a little more where either you don't have all those positions or I should more so say people take on multiple roles and you have more uh, overlap to make it more efficient uh, in terms of an overall labor number and you know, how many people you can fit on the bus because certainly you can't fit (laughs) everyone. Um, And so in that theater side, if that is accurate, then does that lead to more opportunities that people tend to be in that more structured master electrician, assistant master electrician? And the, you're you're having that structured mentorship in terms of that learning process. Now, that maybe that's very much the case in the academic side because you're in that learning institution and maybe in the real world, It doesn't exist that way, but it's an interesting thought.
1: I mean, I think it definitely depends on the company you're working with. Um, Because I know, like when I was at Feld Entertainment, I made it quite clear to everyone that worked on the crew for me that, you know, at department heads, your job is to make sure your assistant can replace you at the end of this tour. If you want, you know, whatever tour you want next year, I will help you get it, but I can only do that if you have trained your replacement. So I sort of forced that relationship on them. Uh, I know that touring Broadway-style shows, I've had some head carpenters that definitely took that approach with their assistants. I've had some that, uh, see they're going to come in, they're going to shake hands, and then they're going to go hang out on the dock while they let the assistants do all the work, and they're not really going to guide things. They're going to just go make advanced phone calls and, not assist much because they think that, Hey, I'm the head. I can do this now. That's not my style. I don't like that style, but there are some head carpenters out there that take that approach.
0: Yeah. It It's definitely a, um, you'll find different management styles and there, you know, I tend to be like you, I'm a hands-on manager. Um, I think I'm constantly trying to say, okay, I'm being hands-on. Is this something I can delegate? Should I, should, am I micromanaging? Cause I certainly know that as an employee, I didn't like being micromanaged. Um, and I also think you, you run into this challenge of like, for me personally, I am my company. Yes, I have a couple of employees, what we call sporadic employees. If I have a project where I need assistance, then I have a couple of people I can use. But fundamentally, the identity of my company is completely tied to me. When people call Entertainment Rigging Services LLC, they're not calling that company. They're like, that's Ethan's company. We're calling Ethan. And (laughs) so... There is that aspect of trying to say, okay, but in this particular situation where I need help or I'm working with a team, I need to delegate and be better at that, but not be so far off that I'm like, oh, I'm going to go sit in the trailer and let me know when something happens and you need me Um, because that's also not in my nature. You know, I, I, I like being hands on on stuff. So yeah, it's, it's definitely a, uh, a learning process, which is something to mention to people that is your learning. Isn't just about the technology or about the procedures of rigging, but also learning it's how different. to work. Yeah, exactly. Which for some people can be the most difficult learning process. You I know? mean, it
1: definitely was for me. Uh, I mean, just me personally, the fact I managed to get to a management point in my life is amazing because early on i was not exactly the individual everybody wanted to work with i was a little rough around the edges i had quite a bit of attitude and honestly i just didn't know how to talk to people that being said through touring uh, i had more than a few locals put me in my place and i definitely learned the value of please and thank you do you you
0: have any stories that you and, and you can not mention where or any specifics, but do you have do you have any examples of something? because I'll tell you, and I speak very obviously people listening to the podcast know I tend to be very candid. Um, there was, maybe there still is a significant reputation of Emerson alumnus being cocky bastards. and it's true and Emerson has changed. it's gotten bigger. But in the 90s, for sure, it was a smaller program and there was this stink. You were like, oh, I went to Emerson College and people had a preconceived notion and they're like, oh, well, you're going to be a pain in the ass to work with. You might know what you're doing, but you're going to have this attitude that you're better than everyone else. And that whether or not it's that is specific to you, you may be the exception, but because Guilt by association. <laughs> and so now you're already fighting an uphill battle.
1: Oh yeah. I definitely i have not had that uh, perception of Emerson. I have had that about full sale, uh, which I will say that there's some good technicians come out of that program, and there are some technicians who live up to the reputation. That being said, I always loved interviewing, you know, kids who are just getting out of full sale because it really is a crapshoot on what you're getting from there. As far as stories go, oh man, um, it's hard to pick one. Uh, I mean, I think a good example of a time that I learned the hard way that I need to that I need to adjust how I communicate according to where I am. Uh, I was touring a show, and I'm going to change names to protect the innocent. So, just say I'm touring a Broadway style show. And I basically turned my truck dump into a one man stand up routine that I did every day when we're loading in. I made the same jokes at the same points, same directions, and we went with it. Well, there was a rather heavy piece that one end of it weighed like 250 pounds and the other end weighed about 30. so i've got four guys and you know i tell them go pick that up and just carry it to the back of the trucks then grab it well the three larger individuals grab the light end and they send the smallest scrawniest truck loader i have ever seen to pick up the heavy end by himself and without thinking the words that came out of my mouth is, oh, yeah, send the pipsqueak to do the hard part. That was a very poor choice of words. And uh, I had a truckloader take a swing at me because he he did not appreciate being called a pipsqueak. Yep. And, I mean, luckily, I have pretty good reflexes. And I was a wrestler in high school, and I caught him rushing armbar into the wall and started yelling for the steward. But that was an example of time that I was not thinking about how I was being perceived and I almost got my ass kicked over it. I right. didn't mean to insult him, but it was just the it's how it came across.
0: Yeah. And that, is, and, and, and that brings up an interesting topic. We take a, a left-hand turn here real fast. Oh, absolutely. Um, In the last week, Uh, So we're recording this uh, a week before Christmas. Um, Within the last week, there was a news story about Tom Cruise scolding two set people. I believe they were in France, England, uh, working on Mission Impossible 7. I, I can't believe there have been that many, but okay. And, uh, and it was related to their COVID protocols and he got, you know, the audio is out there. You can listen to it if you haven't heard it where he goes absolutely ape shit on them. And it's interesting to look at the current discussion. Some people are saying he's absolutely justified because of the severity of the situation. There are others who are saying, uh, the manner in which he was, articulating his frustration was unprofessional and now we also bring in that there are stories that uh he's not necessarily the 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 easiest to work with that sometimes he puts a little more value in his position than someone else's etc 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 uh so it's been an interesting topic to to watch and one of the comments i made to someone was uh, as as the discussion turned to um the style in which, especially when you're talking about life safety uh, is it ever appropriate to raise your voice to another coworker and one of the things that I mentioned in the discussion I was having with some people was one of the things that is important is the context as well as you never really know what kind of day that other person is having so in your story this guy who you you know affectionately even was calling pip squeak we have no idea if he's been going through the last 6 months of fighting with the rest of his coworkers because his nickname is pip squeak and he hates it and they give him crap about it and he's just so fed up with it and you just happen to be, again, wrong place, wrong time, make a joke <laughs> that just triggers them. And clearly it did trigger something because oh, yeah. you got a physical response. Um, but it does bring up that idea of you never know what kind of day someone's having. Um, And if anything we've learned in 2020, it should be everyone deserves a mulligan. Sometimes you guys say, you know what? okay, hindsight being what it is, maybe that wasn't the best course, got caught up in the moment. Um, it's not necessarily always so black and white in terms of, well, you said that, so you must be a bad person. Nope. It, it, one of the examples was um, someone was working at height and their coworker unclipped them from the the fall arrest system. And oh. the the response was, you know, clip me back in stupid. And in the conversation was whether or not it was appropriate to call the person stupid. And I mean, I would lean
1: towards yes in that situation, but uh, sorry to interrupt you, but just when it comes to safety, everyone's responsible for everyone else's safety in my opinion. And if someone is ignoring that, or like in that example, if someone unclipped me, I'm going to look at them depending on what kind of day I'm going to have. I'm probably going to tell him, flip me back in and then go downstairs and tell so-and-so the steward what you just did. Say, no, we're not playing this game. Fix it. Go away. That being said, that's just me personally. Um, I kind of believe that everyone deserves a little bit of grace when they screw up. Uh, just who I am, just how I view the world is people are going to make mistakes. If you treat mistakes as learning experiences, that's what they are instead of a massive screw up. Doesn't mean I want to tolerate them. Some days it's a, all right, you need to go away now. It just depends on the day.
0: And, and I think I tend to, to say quite a bit, everything is a learning experience. But maybe what we need to start doing is adding to that. Everything is a learning experience given the appropriate time to do so. And so when you're actively in a risk situation and that risk increases because of someone's actions uh, and someone could be potentially afraid for their own safety, it is understandable that you might get a not well thought out articulation of their frustration and fear and this Absolutely. is where this is where the the, the saying context is king comes in mm-hmm. we don't know the rest of that story if those two people went downstairs after the work was done and the person who called the other co-worker stupid said hey i'm sorry it's just when we are in that situation, you have to be paying attention and we, we don't have any uh, room for errors. And that th- after they were no longer in the risk situation is when they focused on the education to make sure that they improved. Versus, again, when you're stressed out and something's happening and you're worried someone's going to get hurt, Sometimes y- the rational part of your brain is no longer in command. How many times have you been in a situation unloading a truck where something started to fall? And we all know that the word is stop. It's not, Hey, or heads up. The word is stop. Right. Yep. And how many, how many times does it come out? Whoa! <laughs> it, that's, it's not like, it, you know, that's what I wanted to say, but that's what the the instinct reaction is, is just to respond. And that's what we have to consider. And you're in a heightened sense, uh, situation being yelled at. So now you're not going to react the way you normally would. So maybe sometimes the, the best idea is to take a breather and then say, hey, now that the adrenaline has gone down a little, let's talk about that situation and move forward together in this learning process. No,
1: I mean, that's absolutely the way to handle it, in my opinion, because it's one of those, in the moment, yeah, there's going to be hollering. There's going to be a fix that or watch out or heads or whatever, because that's what's warranted. But there should be a conversation afterwards about, hey, this is the reason this happened. I don't like to yell. You don't like to hear me yell. This is how we prevent this from happening in the future. I don't know. I just feel that a lot of things can be talked out after the fact when uh, people have calmed down and you're no longer in a risk situation.
0: Yep. I think every single time I've ever yelled while working has been due to significant stress. And that's either because the project is going so poorly and it's just, you're so overwhelmed or it's a life safety situation and you are just concerned about someone getting hurt.
1: I have made the crews I work with promise on multiple occasions that I will only raise my voice if someone's in danger. As long as they respond well and you know fix things, we're good. But that I just I don't like yelling out of frustration. I'm a big (laughs) I'm a big fan of the it's time to step away for a moment. Um, I mean that's something that I've done to technicians that were working for me at Feld is I've looked at them and told them doc. Everyone knows if I say Doc, that means it's time for you to step away, take a breather, sort yourself, and then come back and talk when we can actually talk about this.
0: Yeah, and we're not robots. You know, we're emotional creatures. And uh, it's a double-edged sword because it really is. someone being passionate about their work and caring about it is not a bad thing. It's a very good thing. The downside to someone with a lot of passion is there's a lot of passion. And so uh, I think we should be willing to give everyone a mulligan and say, Hey, let's talk about this." And you may discover in that discussion that there is no resolution that, you know, we've all worked with people who their <laughs> default is just to yell at everyone. And you say, uh, eh, just, I'm not interested in working around that person. You know, it, Not saying that doesn't happen, but I would like to give the benefit of doubt to people that there's more, you know, good people out there than a-holes.
1: There are more good people out there than a-holes. I mean, one thing, I keep talking about my time at Feld, which I apologize, but it's where I've spent a lot of the last, oh God, spent two and a half years with them running crews. And one of the things I was very careful about when I hired people for my crew is ice cream for personality more than qualifications. I can teach someone how to do their job. I cannot teach them how to be a better person. Maybe some people can, but I'm not that person.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, there's any numerous stories of, of um, teaching, you know, Someone with, with motivation, I was overwhelmed with thoughts, but the idea is, um, <laughs> it happens. One of the, and I think I've mentioned this in the, a previous, uh, podcast, it's easier to slow someone down. You know, I can't teach. That's what the saying is. I can't teach someone to run faster, but I can teach someone who's really fast to slow down and pace themselves. Um, and that's the point you can take someone who has the right attitude and the right personality and teach them the technical skills. Um, that's a lot easier to do than to take someone who has all these amazing technical skills, but can't communicate, um, because that's not a person who should be working in a group.
1: I agree with that with one exception. When it comes to riggers, I firmly believe that you can teach someone to rig, but you cannot teach someone to be a rigger. Either they learn the skills and they learn the right way of doing it. And they've you know sort of got it or they've got the skills. They know what it is and they don't.
0: I, I, I don't disagree with that. Just I, for some reason,
1: that's the one trade that I really, I can't teach you to be a rigger. I can teach you how to do it, but either you are or you aren't. Yep.
0: Yeah, there, there is in in and yes that does that's why there are these jokes about god and rigors because they're, they're <laughs> and it's not just it's not it's just not the working, working at height situation there's it's the a mindset comfort. it is yeah there's this this aspect where you want your rigor to have a certain confidence that nothing is going to fail and that's not a person falling, a piece of equipment falling, no one else getting hurt, whether it's this perceived risk that because they're in charge of, quote unquote, lifting all this heavy stuff, that that is the riskiest situation that we deal with in a event or anything else. But I There's think- a
1: term that I always tell riggers about that I love. It's rigor noia. It's like paranoia, but it's specific to riggers. I like it. If your riganoia isn't acting up, then I'm concerned. I want you to be a little paranoid about what you're doing because that means you're double-checking. You're triple-checking. Yeah. Uh, I mean, like one-nighter schedules on Broadway-style tours. I've done 13 cities in 13 days. It is rough. And on day yeah. you know 10, 11, that riganoia kicks in real hard, and I spent a lot of time – checking the same thing four or five times because I can't remember if I checked it today or yesterday. That's rigor noia and that is something that I feel all riggers need to develop.
0: There's a, a friend of mine that I've I've mentioned and I'm actually going to give him a shout out right here. Um, Lincoln Limey is a company that is uh, one of the leaders in uh, safety training within the industry. Um, Dominic Huzio is the principal over there. Um, if you're looking for OSHA 30, industry specific OSHA 10 and OSHA 30, and COVID training uh, virtually, check them out. And um But one of the things that they do when they do events is they have a physical checklist, a ready-to-fly checklist that they do. Every single time they move a trust. And so they go through and it's the stuff that we all know we should be doing. You check check the trust bolts, you check the C clamps, you check, you know, X, Y, and Z. But they do the checklist and they've created the culture when they do events to do that checklist. Because if you're doing a lot of stuff, did we check those trust bolts? Yeah, I checked those. Was that today? Was that yesterday? Did I really do that? Did I think about doing it, start walking over there, get distracted by something else and never get to it? Um, And I really like that idea of doing a physical checklist. I've actually talked about, hey, do it as a Google form so that you can be like, hey, just pull up on your phone because everyone has a phone now and you go click, 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 click. Yep, it's ready to go. And then, God forbid, you have an incident, you have a paper trail and that just makes it easier to figure out Why did it happen and how do we move forward from there? Absolutely. So you talked about how, uh, you grew up watching your father work in the industry. He was clearly a big mentor to you. Um, who are some of the other mentors that you've had in the industry?
1: Oh,
0: I mean, I've had several of them. Um,
1: See, early on when I was first starting to work as a local, uh, a gentleman by the name of Fritz Bush, who unfortunately is no longer with us, sort of took me under his wing. Because uh, I mean, I was a legacy, so of course, doing an apprenticeship, I got a lot of the crap jobs. Just it's what happens when you're a legacy in a union local. And Fritz was one of the guys who actually took the time to look at me and go, "No one told you how to do this thing yet, did they? No." And he'd show me how to do it. Uh, He also encouraged me to go out to the Santa Fe Opera as an apprentice, which I went out there and did an apprenticeship out there for a summer. Then later on in my career, he encouraged me to give back and go back to the Santa Fe Opera as their stage carpenter, which I went and did that. And uh, unfortunately, he actually passed while I was out there as a stage carpenter. So that was sort of a uh, dark summer for me, but it was what it was. Uh, another mentor who I've already mentioned, uh, Scott England. That gentleman taught me more about how to survive in a touring atmosphere than anyone else could have. And ultimately, he also taught me what it feels like to get fired. Uh, Scott fired me from my first tour. I deserved it. I have no qualms about it. But just a he taught he taught me a lot of things the hard way.
0: All right. Well, you brought it up. I can't not ask. Do you want to share that story? Because I don't think that's something that, um, yeah, that a lot of, a lot of people are going to think to talk about is, you know, getting fired from a position. It We've all had this shared experience. Of oh yeah. Losing work because of COVID. but, Maybe a lot of people don't have any experience with what happens when you're terminated for cause. Yeah, I mean, honestly,
1: <laughs> he should have fired me a few months before he did. Um, the short version of it is that when we were loading into a city, which uh, that was Cavalli's Odysseo, which was a tent show. So we would literally take over a couple city blocks and build this little compound. I was taking the automation console out of the truck and it was about, oh, I'm gonna say 300 yards from the tent. So I take it out, I've got on a, uh, a zoom boom, a, a telescoping handler, I think is the proper term for that. And I'm driving towards the tent. And I knew that there was a fire hydrant somewhere in the vicinity of where I was driving. So I raised the forks up so I could see the hydrant and just as I got to where I could see the hydrant, I hit a pothole I didn't see and I dropped the, oh, couple hundred thousand dollar automation console mm. from about 10 feet in the air. Oh, It shattered. I mean, it came down, it was still in its case, but it was damage control and of course, it was raining to make things even worse. So that happened, and I spent the next oh eight weeks or so expecting my pink slip. Just nope, it's gonna come, it's gonna happen. I screwed up. I'm gonna save all my pennies now. That's where I made my real mistake. Is I got into my own head that I was fired. That it was gonna happen. And I started making other little mistakes. And after several weeks of that, finally, the time had come that I was making too many little mistakes. It was time for me to go. Um, Scott had the technical director for the company terminate me. And then I reached out to him afterwards with a, hey, look, we're good. Can we just have a beer and talk about this before I get on the plane to go home? And he met me, we had a beer, we chatted for about 45 minutes and it was a, yeah, this is mutual. It's time for me to be gone. So it was unplanned, unpleasant, but I am truly thankful that he fired my ass.
0: That's a very important, um, learning experience in terms of rebounding from a significant mistake. Um, and, and mentally checking gotta out.
1: Learn. You've got to learn to keep rolling. The moment yep. you stop rolling is when you start getting into trouble.
0: Yep. Yeah, and, and, and maintaining that focus on the continue improvement aspect.
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: <laughs> so you've had... Uh, a bunch of touring experience. You've mentioned a couple of different events that you've, uh, or shows that you worked with. Um, what's one of your favorite projects that you've worked on? Um, I have two I'm going to mention, and they're
1: for very different reasons. Um, the first one I'm going to mention is I did the North American and Latin American tours of Blue Man Group and loved it. Uh, Blue Man Group. It's just it's a fun show.
0: I essentially had. Uh, I'm sorry. I was oh, going to say, did you uh, get to to work with uh, Galen much? I did not. Okay. So fun- a little shout out to a friend of mine.
1: <laughs> um, but no, I mean, I loved touring that show, and we. I was on sort of the death rattle of the North American tour. Uh, One of those it had been out for six years. We'd hit all of the A markets. We'd hit all the B markets. We'd hit all the C markets. So now we're going to do some of the C and D markets and try and squeeze a few pennies out of this. Yep. Which is a rough schedule, especially with that many trucks. I don't remember how many it is, but I'm going to say it was like six or so. Six is sticking in my mind, but it's been a few years. So it was truly rough. It was one of those you start your day at 6 a.m., you end your day at 2 a.m., and you do it for 13 days straight. It blew. There's no other way to word it. But it was an amazing group to be with. Uh, Just the crew, they were all rock stars. Everyone got along, which is a, want to say a rare thing, but to be in a crew where literally everyone's your best friend doesn't happen every day. And then there's the actual show. Because, I mean, during the show, it's essentially a 90-minute long dance party. Yeah, Yeah, we got cues. I mean, I was running an automation console the whole time. But I was standing at my console, dancing, hitting the go button. It was awesome. I loved working for Blue Man. My second favorite project I'm going to mention, uh, I was actually working for an installer called Aerial Arts that's based out of Indianapolis, Indiana but they had a job down in Atlanta. Uh, They were working, building the new Falcon Stadium. Uh, Essentially, they have a method of using truss and chain motors to build platforms that uh, the best way to describe it is you basically can get a freight elevator of any size anywhere in the building that you want. And we were working with the sheet metal guys and then later on with the uh, pipe fitters to get all the duct work in the ceiling and get all the pipe drains off of the roof and all of that stuff. That job was all kinds of challenging, but it was a kind of challenging that I loved. I mean, I started, my shift would start at 7 PM and we'd work till 9 AM. We worked through the nights. Uh, it was about 425 ish feet from ground level to where we were working Uh, I started out as being one of the upriggers that would be painting the chain motors. Uh, turns out that that just wasn't quite for me. And I ended up being a platform operator for most of the time I was with them where literally I'd show up, you know, in the evening we would load, I was working with the pipe fitters. Mostly we'd load all their tools and all the supplies they needed for the day into the platform. It would take 28 minutes to motor from ground up to the ceiling, and then we'd work a full shift. And my entire job was to make sure that everyone was abiding by all of the safety rules of working at height to make sure that all the motors were bypassed when we were stopped. So it was, you know, dead Hansa resting on the brake and just to make sure everyone was working safely from that platform as well as operating the platform up and down. But uh, yeah, I loved that one. That was awesome.
0: Definitely sounds like a fun one. So four hundred and something odd feet, and that's yeah. uh, single single chain on the motor. So that that is a lot of weight. Oh they, they, yeah, I would assume they were one tons.
1: Yeah, they were one ton motors. Um, I was running the smallest of the platforms. Mine, i want to say, I was like. Uh, 15 by 25. It might have been a little smaller than that. It's been a few years, but I mean, it was smaller, whereas the larger ones were like 30 by 60. All right. But because I had the small one, that meant I got to go to the more interesting, more unique spaces.
0: About how often were you moving your platform around? Because obviously you go up, you do your work, and then once that area is complete, you're moving on, right?
1: theoretically we would move every third day was the goal. Sometimes we'd move more often. Sometimes I'd be in the same spot for two weeks. Um, wow. It depends on how the work's going. Also weather came into account because, you know, storm blows in with lightning. We've got to clear the air. It's a work site. We cannot be working at heights with lightning period.
0: And you you have to, you have to project that out with a 28 minute travel time. Exactly. So it's one of those, if there's a
1: lightning strike within, I think it was within 30 miles, it was an immediate stop to work, everyone comes down. Yeah. Which, I mean, 30 miles, I was genuinely surprised how often there is a rogue lightning strike within 30 miles. Yeah. No storm, just one random lightning strike, and all right, cool, well, now I'm not working for the next four hours.
0: Yeah, it, it's actually something that has been uh a a challenge and something we're working through on the the outdoor festival side of our industry or any outdoor event which is uh there there was a kind of a black and white rule which is if there is a lightning strike within X distance you're shut down for half an hour period. Um We started getting better with saying, hey, if you have active weather monitoring with a service, so you actually have a meteorologist looking at your weather and advising with you, now you can change that because you have more information and someone with a lot more experience can uh, kind of be involved in the decision-making process. But yeah, it's certainly a challenge. Um, And I don't, That's one of those great examples where being indoors, uh, I mean,
1: indoors with air quotes there because we definitely had holes in the ceiling.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. So pseudo indoors, but I, I think people wouldn't think of that as being completely outdoors either. So it's just another aspect that people may not think about.
1: Oh, yeah. And I mean, another one of the fun challenges on that job was actually moving the platforms because the way we do it is we had multiple sets of motors. And while I'm working in one location, wherever I'm going next, I've got a team over there hanging those motors. Right. When it's time to move, we go all the way down to where we're only a foot or so off the ground. And we essentially would swing the platform and swap motors. Yep. Which, you know, sometimes we could do it with just one-to-one. Sometimes we'd have to hang a couple sets of motors in between to get us where we needed to go. And that was an experience that I never would have imagined until I was doing.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's the interesting side is chain hoists in our industry. We took them from someone else. You know, they the construction side of the world, they do some very interesting things for lifting and things that, you know, how many times have you looked on Facebook at someone saying, I can't believe in construction. They use wire rope slings with no thimbles. (laughs) Well, yeah, because usually they're going to a hook that's maintaining the D to D ratio versus yep. you know we have these small little chintzy you know one ton motor hooks and they got these hundred ton cranes with a hook the size of you know my upper torso um <laughs> so yeah you, you know, there's always some interesting stuff out there that you you know you can learn from and observe and be like hey that's pretty cool maybe at some point i'll be able to pull on that knowledge for some challenge i'm having and um you know solve a problem and everyone will be like, Hey, that's pretty cool. You get the beer at the bar tonight. So.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, that's one of the reasons that I love how wide of a spectrum I've worked in my career. Cause I mean, I've done Cirque style shows. I've done Broadway style. I did a rock and roll style tour. I've done installs. I even worked on cruise ships for a little while. So I've got a pretty wide net these days.
0: Yeah. so, It's a perfect segue. So you had mentioned when we first heard talking that uh, you recently this year, the last few months, formed a company. You did so with your father. Um, Let's talk about why you decided to start a business, especially it's not like, you know, my timing was I started a business a year and a half ish before this happened. I was already kind of rolling and it happened. You made a choice to start a business while this was happening. Um, and you have some interesting things that you're working on. So let's talk about the, the forming the company and, and what you're doing. All right. Um,
1: so DeLon Rigging Solutions, uh, I mean, I guess the origin story is where I should start here. And that is that back in March of 2020, I was working for Feld Entertainment And was terminated along with everyone else in the company. Uh, I mean, they terminated well over 95% of the company in a morning. So when that happened, it happened because of COVID. Just everything shut down. They decided to stop the bleeding while they could maintain what they could maintain. And more power to them. It was the right business choice. So I came home. And I spent a few months licking my wounds and just saying, I'll wait this out. Maybe we will get going this summer with something. Well, as the spring progressed, it became more apparent that there probably wouldn't be any touring happening in the summer. I picked a day and marked on the calendar when I was going to find a job outside of the industry if I hadn't found something by then. Just it was the that's the day that I accept. It's time to get a job even if it is a nine to five in an office or some other horrid situation like that. Luckily, a installation company uh, out of Indianapolis called Associated Control and Design called me up about a week before that date happened. And they were having, I mean, the situation is the best way to word it, where they had a whole bunch of jobs that were backlogged because of covid and supply chain problems and they had the local labor they just didn't have the supervision to keep it going and they had heard i was available they knew that i was etcp certified they knew that i'd done some installations before so they called me and said hey will you come do some 1099 work and we'll see how it works out and maybe we can make this a full-time job in the future." And my response was, hell yeah, I'm in. So I went to work for him. And while I was working for him, I just sort of noticed, I noticed sort of a disconnect between them and the client. That it it was through no fault of their own. Everyone was up against the wall because of COVID and being way behind on timelines and contracts that were, drawn up and written, you know, years ago, long before anyone imagined a pandemic throwing a wrench into things. So it was a very tense atmosphere. And when I started talking to clients, I just sort of clicked with them and they became really easy with me and trusting in that, no, really guys, this is what it is. Let's move forward. And then I had the idea of well why shouldn't there be someone out there talking to these people who's not trying to sell them anything? And that was the first sort of inkling of DeLon Ricking solutions. And At that time I actually formed an LLC uh, that I called A Man, A Jeep, No Real Plan LLC because I really didn't know where it was going. But I knew that I wanted to form a company, and this was how I was going to start exploring. And as I was exploring, I noticed that there are some things out there that I'm not going to say are missing, but just aren't there. And one of them is quality barrier-free training for individuals at like high schools or young professionals who are trying to start that maybe don't have a mentor like I had. And that's where the idea of one shot training came about. Um, One shot training is currently in its beta phase. It's going to be going live to the public on or about January 15th. And it's a series of currently 25 short videos between three and 20 minutes covering everything from, how to kick a shiv up on the grid to the proper way of operating a single purchase system. There's a whole bunch of task specific how to guides, if you will, that I'm putting out for free for everyone, because I feel that there should be no barrier between learning how to operate your equipment safely.
0: Absolutely. And it, yeah, I've discussed in, uh, with other guests in other episodes the, the challenges of trying to monetize online training. So um, creating a resource from the get go, which is uh, open sourced to say for people is a um, it's a tough decision to come to, but also a great and very valuable asset within the industry.
1: It is. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, I'm I'm probably investing close to 10 grand in this once it's up and running. And I'm doing it with no guarantees of any payback other than I'm trying to sell advertising on it because I'm hoping that there's it's going to generate enough hits, enough people are going to be using this resource that, you know, organizations or, say, vendors want to advertise on the website. But otherwise... I'm just taking a hit on this one. I feel that strongly on it. If I don't see a dime back from this, it's still worth doing.
0: Yeah. You know, you can't open a business without risk. Yeah. Just say, um,
1: I'm doing a pandemic, so it doesn't get any riskier than that.
0: (laughs) Right. What have some of the challenges been in creating the content? um, I mean, the challenges, the biggest challenge
1: has been, as we mentioned before, I'm partnered up with my father, John DeLong, who is, you know, we're 50 50 on this company. It's sort of one of those, the company was my idea, but I literally looked at him one day as we were driving and said, So do you want to work for me or do you want to be a partner? And his response was, Which do you want? And I just looked at him and went, 50 50. We settle disagreements by playing darts in the garage. All right, deal.
0: You playing playing cricket or (laughs) O one?
1: We're playing what we refer to as barroom darts because we don't actually know the rules to any other darts. All right, (laughs) there's usually an adult beverage involved in darts in the garage.
0: Yep. So, really, what you're playing for is who's the last one standing. That has
1: happened on more than one occasion.
0: (laughs) Um. But yeah, so back to the
1: original question of the challenge of creating this content, because it's one of those, I mean, I'm a small startup. I do not have a giant reservoir of cash to do this with. So the first challenge was, all right, do I have a camera that's capable of doing this? Luckily, the answer is yes. Uh, I stole a camera from my wife that she uses for photography, and it happens to do videos. The audio on it, not so great. But it it's good enough for this, for starting this, for getting this out there and hopefully generating enough user interface that it's worth investing in a better camera to redo them. The next challenge, once I had the equipment, was the space. Um, Luckily, uh, Indiana University Auditorium was willing to work with me to come to an agreement to let me film on their stage. Um, which has been a godsend because it's it's a roadhouse. It's got everything I'm talking about right there. So that was amazing to get uh, use of that space. So I've got the space. I've got the camera. I had some scripts that I wrote out for all these videos, and we start filming, we realize that the scripts are shit. Just, they're dry. We can't do it. They don't work. <laughs> and that's when dad and I looked at each other and went, do you want to try weaning one? We know what the topic is. Let's just do it. Go go organic. Exactly. We went organic. Um, of, the, of the videos that are in the beta version, only one of them actually is using the script that I wrote. All the rest of these are organic. They're just two rigging professionals who are taking turns staying in front of a camera talking about something which I think came out with a better product. But now I have the problem of, I didn't always hit all of the points I should have because we went organic and it's just a, okay. So I talked about how to operate a fly system, but did I use all the right terminology? Cause terminology matters, but at the same time, does it matter enough for me to redo this? And that's why I have the beta phase that's going on right now is, I've put out the product, uh, One Shot Training, to about 60 individuals uh, ranging from well-known professionals in the industry, some of which have already been on your show actually, to high school teachers that I'm hoping will use this. Because I want feedback from everyone to know what works, what doesn't work. And I mean, I've got some people that are Deaning me left and right on the archaic use of terminology such as hemp system. Yes, I realized that we no longer call it a hemp system because nobody uses hemp ropes. Now it's referred to as a rope and sandbag system. But everybody still calls it a hemp system. So, you know, I've got some of that going on. But overall, I'm getting pretty good feedback on these videos and people are really enjoying them. I've had three individual professors, uh, college professors tell me that they're integrating this into their curriculum next semester. Nice. Yeah, so I mean, I think I've hit something here if people are jumping on it going, "Hey, can I show my friend and see if they want to use this too?" Cuz my answer is absolutely, send them to me, I'll get them hooked up with access to the beta.
0: Yeah, and it's it's I think people uh kind of like our, our ANSI standards process. Beta testing is the, the public review process and it can be, uh, it can be growing. You know, you create something and you think it's great and you send it out and then without fail, people start picking it apart. But that's what makes it better is that you, you internally take those rounds to say, and then you say, all right, let's improve it. Let's do this. And, by the time you release it to the public, hopefully it's it's polished enough that uh, it's really effective and you've gone through that that growth process.
1: Exactly. I mean, I'm referring to it as it's peer review. I'm putting it out for my peers yeah. to look at and tell me. Either it works, it doesn't work. These are where you made false assumptions. Here's where you omitted something or, hey, are you? Re- do you realize that you loaded that weight into the arbor with one hand instead of two? I did get caught on that. I have already fixed that, but I did get caught doing that on film.
0: It happens. It does. Absolutely. It it brings up a a good topic of complacency that again, we're, we're human. We make errors. We do stuff. Whether it's, I stand on the toe board of the genie lift so I can get that extra two inches so I can get that shutter cut on that fixture or I can reach that bolt to tighten it, or this, or oh, it's the end of the day and I just need to move one foot forward. Let's move the lift while it's up. We all get complacent. We do stuff and we're like, hey, I know this isn't right, but it's me. And that's that's the hard part is to say, it, I'm gonna force myself to stop and go, yeah, nope, I gotta, I gotta do this the 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 correct way because Because I'm teaching people who don't know the correct way. (laughs) But even more, especially, yeah, in that situation, but also because you don't want to become the example of, well, so-and-so was a really good rigor. I don't know how this incident happened. Well, because they made a choice and they made the wrong choice. So what we're trying to do is help people be empowered to make the right choice. Oh, absolutely.
1: And I mean, one thing that I... When I'm teaching someone how to rig, one of the things I always tell them is properly trained people have accents in two situations. If they are too comfortable doing what they are doing or if they are uncomfortable doing what they are doing, if you're nervous, you're going to make a mistake. By the same token, if you are way too comfortable and you're not thinking about it, you're going to make a
0: mistake. Yep. Um, so we talked about the videos and some of the challenges. I'm going to shift gears a little bit. Absolutely. And maybe this is something that you discovered in creating your videos and using this particular space. Maybe not. Um, what is one of the, the, oh, I'm going to create I describe it a new way what's one of the sloppiest rigging jobs you've seen or, or a situation that oh. gave you pause for concern? Okay. Um,
1: I'll admit, I knew this question was coming because I've been listening to your podcast and I've been back and forth on if I was going to share this story or not, but I'm going to share it. I was working in Latin America and I had a day where you know I'm in a theater. I've got riggers up on the grid, and just the hairs are staying up on the back of my neck. Just for some reason, even though my points were hitting where they need to hit, something was not right. So I convinced one of the translators to climb up to the grid with me because I knew if I was going up there, I should take someone that speaks the language with me so I can talk to these guys. I got up there to discover that not a single one of those points were hung in what I considered to be a safe manner. They had cables twisted. They had shackles side-loaded. Uh, they were using the pin of a shackle to make another cable bend just the right way. It was the shadiest thing I have ever seen. At that point in time, I got on my radio, and I called the head carpenter and told him to clear the stage. Just clearing. And he was very, okay, what's going on? And I told him that I'll be down with pictures in a couple seconds. And I got down with the pictures and showed him the pictures. And he looked at me and went, we need new riggers. And I went, yeah, or I need a plane ticket. Because it was just one of those, it was so bad, I was not going to let my name be anywhere near it unless we were fixing it.
0: Yeah. Yep. It's, it's interesting. In telling that story, you brought up a term that came up recently. Uh, I believe uh, the CM Rigger form posted a photo of a uh, inverted, what we call an inverted, a motor up situation with some shackles that were not sitting properly yeah that that, that brought up the 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 term you used side loading a shackle versus cross loading a shackle so people have listened to me talk before know that that's one of those situations that uh we tend to use the term side loading a shackle the way we do on a carabiner and uh, again if you've seen those posts but there's actually uh both of those terms relate to shackles and they mean different things. Side loading, or what we consider to be putting the load along the axis of the pin, so you're pulling the ears of the shackle apart, um, is actually called cross loading. And that shackle manufacturers call side loading an asymmetric load on the shackle. So, again, I think I've talked about this in a previous episode put the pin of the shackle through a steel plate and instead of two bridle legs coming to the shackle, only one bridle leg is coming. And whether that's, you know, the shackles in a vertical or horizontal configuration really doesn't matter. That is sideloading for, for shackles. And it's one of those things we were talking for the, you know, the listeners before we started recording, we were talking about terms and Sundays in theaters, which Mm -hmm. is, a wire rope or it could be synthetic, but usually it's, you know, honestly, a lot of the times it's a lighting safety. So an eighth inch piece of wire rope that's done in the loop and is uh, you do a prussic knot on one of your operating lines to add a sandbag or to dead off that line set, whatever. And then Sunday is a total slang term. I don't think there are a lot of touring rigors in the theater that if you said Sunday to would not know what you're saying but that's technically not what they are. And there's not a lot of people who can tell you where the term comes from, but it's part of the lexicon. So it it brings up that interesting debate about terminology and when it is important to make sure that we're talking about the right thing and when it can be a colloquial term and it doesn't matter. And I go back and forth on both of them. It's like, eh, everything's important. The terms, you have to be as precise as possible, because if you're not, then you're going to make a mistake. But is it really that important? <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, terms matter. That's for
1: sure. But at the same time, it's a as long as both people in the conversation are using the term the same way.
0: Yeah, it it it's really is the information being related correctly. That's the point. It's not is the term correct. It's as you said, is person A and person B understanding it. It brings up an interesting uh general topic, which is in rigging math, there are different variables. And that's a comment that people come up with all the time. They 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 hate the ETCP exam because of the math and they're afraid of the math and the equations. And um, as an instructor, one of the things that I've found to help with that is to teach people where the equations came from in terms that they already use thing using the lexicon that they're used to so that it makes sense that they can relate it to their knowledge base they already have. And and that's a good way of demystifying it. And Rocky Paulson wrote an article years ago, I believe entitled uh, clarity out of confusion, talking about rigging terms and some people call The force inside one half of a bridle leg tension, some call it the force on the leg. And it's the same thing, it's just a different term. And so when you're talking, if you're advancing a show or talking with someone in a different state, you just want to be articulating the same message so that they understand what you're talking about and there is no confusion. I don't, oh, yeah. care. I don't care if you use terms like that's red and that's blue and that's green. As long as everyone knows what red, blue, and green really means, who cares? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, like with the
1: uh, tension in a bridle, one way that I personally differentiate that is tension is the force actually in the bridle leg. If I'm talking forces, I'm talking about the vertical and horizontal force upon it. We're actually yep. technically upon the beam, but uh, just that's what works in my head like the math on the etcp certification i'm not going to lie that little formula sheet that they give you was absolutely worthless to me but luckily i knew before i went in that that sheet wasn't going to work so i memorized the formulas i knew i needed and the first thing i did on the test was write down the formulas before i forgot them
0: yep i i tell people listen if if and you can get a copy of the um the equation sheet beforehand. Uh, if you take the exam in person, it's in the the book. If you take it at a testing center, I believe they give you a copy. Not they sure. What they, I'm not sure what they do for the online exam. I'm assuming they give you a copy um, or one is available to you, how they do that. I'm not specifically sure. So don't quote me on that. Um, but I tell people, okay, write down the variables that you understand, make yourself that cheat sheet and purge that information from your brain and then move on. You know, if that's all you're focused on is like, don't even write your name down, just purge here. Are the equations done. Um, there are all those types of tricks. It, it it brings up a question and you brought up the exam. Um, you got your certification almost three years ago now. Cause we're at the end of the year. So 2018, yeah. what, what was the decision process in deciding to, to get the certification both of the, and not really, why did you get both of them versus one of them? But, um, I think it would be interesting to hear from someone who recently got them. Well, um, I mean, in, in the I, thought process,
1: I got them for a lot of reasons. Um, the biggest one I think uh, honestly you might even be able to say is kind of a selfish reason, but I got it because I was tired of being the low guy on the totem pole. I know what I'm doing. I know I know what I'm doing. But because I you know, I'm in my thirties, you know, guys who are in their fifties and sixties, they don't want to listen to me. So getting certified was partially the, all right, you know what guys, I have the piece of paper now. I know what I'm talking about. So let's have this conversation instead of just blowing me off. That definitely came into play. Also, it was one of those, honestly, I got my certifications when I was between contracts and I've been just looking at that point in time, I was just looking for something to put on my resume that would help me stand out. And ultimately those certifications do help you stand out. So I recently have been doing a, uh, I don't want to say research, but poking around the ETCP database. And there are not a lot of people who have both certifications. There's under 300 in the country, or at least according to the database, which how accurate that is, I don't know. But according to the database, there's under 300 people that have both of them.
0: Yep. And, and then you get into uh, low double digits for people who have, I'll say three of them? Yes, you can get all four. However, uh, <laughs> the the power distribution um I'll get it I'm sure I'm going to get a text message after this podcast airs from certain individuals. <laughs> um there's a term that us us I use is it's the electrician light certification. Um the power distribution ETCP certification is was developed sp- with uh, the trade show market in mind. There are mm-hmm. a lot of people who they were looking for a certification for show power for trade shows and power distribution where you're not dealing with control and dimming systems. So I yeah. took dimming and control out of it and created that. So if you unlike the rigging exams where there's different information on each of one of them if you take the full ETCP electricians exam you've basically done the power distribution exam as well you just had all the extra stuff of dimming and control and networking so there are again we can look it up but Low double digit of number of people who've done all three exams, um, and I'll be quite frank with everyone. The reason I have not done the electrician's exam is because, well, damn it, I don't want to actually understand Ohm's law. I'm happy with West Virginia.
1: <laughs> I am right there with you.
0: <laughs> it's such a silly thing, but yeah, it's um, yeah, it's 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 very. Oh yeah, well, uh, I mean.
1: As far as doing both of them, I actually decided to do both of them because, you know, in my career, I've worked in both environments. But also I had the realization of about half of the material is the same between the two tests. Yep. Why would I study for one of them now and then in the future have to study the same material again when I could just study all of it and have one really, really rough day at a testing site and do both of them at once? It just it made no sense to me not to do both of them at once
0: when i did uh I did both of them uh in two thousand five the inaugural class and we were in orlando uh it was at Ldi and I got out of the second one and I mean I had crammed i like yourself I had memorized all the equations of course at that time we didn't know. We didn't know what pass fail was. We didn't know how many people, you know, if everyone got four questions correct out of 150, we would have said, wow. I guess three questions is passing and four is perfect. Uh, Who knows? Um, So we were the guinea pigs and we were evaluating the process. Um, And so that evening, I'm there with a bunch, you know, the owners of the company. We went out to dinner at Margaritaville. And again, I it's 2005, so I was 30 years old. Um, I think it was a month; it was October, so it was a month before my birthday. And I was like, "All right, I I, I did these exams. We're not going to know for weeks if I pass or fail. And all I wanted to do was get drunk. I just, <laughs> I, dude. So the vice president of the company was like, "You're drinking on me tonight. We're proud of you. Let's do this." And I realized Margaritaville, their margaritas are watered down Well, I was going for the hard stuff. I was just doing shots of tequila. And, and numerous shots later, the owner came up to me or the VP came up to me and said, I think we're done. <laughs> it's like, uh, I I don't think this is going to happen. I was still so ha- amped up. My metabolism was going that it just nothing. I was oh, yeah. completely sober. Um. Honestly, everyone I've talked
1: to who's taking the test has a similar story. After you pass the test, especially if you do both of them at the same time, everybody just wants a drink. I can't explain why, but that seems to be what everyone does after taking this exam.
0: Yeah, but it, it, it goes into the idea of what I said earlier, which is um, there is a lot of overlap and certain things like, you know, the math is going to be the same for both of them because gravity is the same. I made that joke earlier. True. Chain hoist and truss are going to be in both of them. You do, on the arena side, there may be not as much about counterweight rigging systems. Um, there may be perception-wise more in the arena side for fall or rest systems because the arena side tends to be less of a, uh, has less infrastructure to say, or we perceive that aspect. But the reality is there's just as many opportunities in, in theaters for the need for fall protection and fall arrest. Um, so yeah, it, it's an interesting topic to debate in, in terms of the, the two subject matters. Um, but yeah, I, it, I have a friend of mine who was 92 and he had to have knee surgery and he did both knees at the same time. And when people asked why, he said, if I got to learn to walk again, I just want to do that once.
1: Exactly.
0: So take both tests at the same time and just get it over with. Certainly not a bad approach. I definitely would
1: recommend it to people is if you're going to take one and you think you may want to do the other one eventually, just do them both at the same time. Uh, I mean, it makes for one very, very stressful day. Don't get me wrong, but it's one bad day and then you never have to do it again as long as you keep up on your continuing ed and keep working.
0: I have and you're going through this for the first time, you get five years, have you started doing, and I realized this year a lot of people did their continuing education because they had the time to. Anything specific you've been doing for your continuing education or anything different that you've been doing for it? Um, well, I mean,
1: oh, God, now I've got to remember all the things I've done for it. Uh, I've done pretty much all of the online options, but I started doing my continuing ed immediately after getting my certification. So I did not want to be in a position where, you know, I'm six months from renewal and don't have any. So I've sort of been taking it in the spirit of what's intended and I'm constantly doing continuing ed. I think I had enough points to recertify about a year, year and a half afterwards or after I took it originally. That being said, I'm just going to sit on that stuff until it's time to recertify. Yep. Lately, I've been uh, trying to do Bill Saps' uh, seminars, his online remote seminars. Yeah. So, I mean, they're free. They're worth points. And honestly... Bill's just fun. It's a real fun way to sit back for an hour and a half and get some points. Did you do this week's? I did do this week's. He actually answered my question. So I'm so thrilled.
0: For those who uh, are unaware, this week's uh, Bill Sapsis uh, session was a uh, an interview of himself and uh, his brother, Michael Sapsis, Believe it or not, there's, there's two Sapsis brothers, they're twins and, uh, they're both riggers. Um, and they did a, uh, interview with the two of them. And I, unfortunately I wasn't able to attend, but that, that was one that I am sure, um, quote unquote sold out very quickly because they are both besides being extremely knowledgeable, um, They're funny guys, they're good public speakers, and they got a a ton of stories. Oh
1: yeah, the stories uh, ranged from why they have to call what they throw at each other to hitchhiking across the country. Uh, It was quality entertainment.
0: If you want a hitchhiking across the country made me think of this. and Again, another text message I'm sure will come in once he hears that I said this. (laughs) If you want a fun kind of side story of Bill Sapsis. You can find a clip. Maybe I'll put it in the show notes. Maybe I won't. Uh, There's a clip from the TV show shipping wars for which one of the contestants, people's, you know, whatever the concept of the show is people say, Oh, you need to move this thing. I'll charge you a thousand dollars and I can get it done within, you know, 48 hours this particular episode, they were moving this horse statue thing from Philadelphia out to somewhere else. And so Sapsis rigging was hired to lift this thing onto this guy's trailer. Um, and, uh, it went how we thought it would, which is Sapsis did a good job and was methodical about it. But of course, this guy is just wanting to get the thing on his trailer as fast as possible. And it's kind of funny. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, if you don't yeah. post
1: it, email it to me. I want to see that.
0: I'll have to see if I can find the link again. Um, yeah, there have been some very good online resources. The Chicago Flyhouse did a bunch of stuff uh, that they just wrapped up. Um, you now have some of your stuff. And that's an important thing that I want to mention. Um, when you get do your continuing education uh, for ETCP, You get more points when it is from a recognized instructor or program. That does not mean you can't get points for other training. Um, So anything that, you know, if you have a question about whether or not some online training could be considered for renewal credits, shoot off an email to the ETCP uh, administrator and find out. Ask the question because there could be some great stuff out there. I would make an argument that first aid in CPR training, yeah, it may not be one point per hour, but if it's the half point per hour, may be a valuable tool for people to have as a certified technician. Um, I mean, I training.
1: think everyone should go ahead and do that if they're working in theater. We work in a dangerous environment. You never know when you need it.
0: There's uh, this interesting situation where when I was the safety officer for the for the company I was working for I was trying to do get first aid and CPR training and of course money is is a realistic concern for an owner of a company and looking at oh well do we have to train everybody and I said well if you're working late on a Friday night closing out the books and it's just you and the office manager and neither one of you has had the CPR training and one of you needs it what good did it do? And the right is everybody should be trained. Everybody should have basic first aid training. If, how many people go a week without bleeding in our industry? You know, a <laughs> no nick here, exactly. A, a Nick here or there versus, you know, hey, taking a finger off. It, it, being able to triage that stuff is very important. I thankfully still have all my digits. Just saying. You and me both. All right, well, I think we're an hour and 35-ish minutes into this. Um, I think we've covered some good topics. I I think I'm going to hit you with a hard one, which we kind of alluded to earlier.
1: All right, what you got?
0: Do you have any good and horrifically bad rigor jokes? All right. So an electrician
1: and a carpenter walk into a bar. Next time they'll listen to the Flyman.
0: Nice. We've 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 tangently touched on a variation of that, but it's oh, I missed it. Nah well it's it's getting challenged. This is episode thirty. So trying to find you know. thirty rigor jokes is pretty hard, so <laughs> awesome. right. well Tyler I gotta say it's been a fun experience again. This is two weeks in a row where I get to talk to someone who I did not know beforehand. So it it was fun for me to get to hear new stories and, uh, to get to learn about you and your experiences. I really appreciate that. Um, so I just, you know, thanking you for taking the time to do this and I'll let you have the, the final words.
1: All right. Well, you know, for stars, thank you for having me. It's
0: been a pleasure
1: and uh final words i have for people out there is go get trained any training is better than no training so just seriously if you're going to be doing anything rigging related make sure you're getting trained and make sure you gain it from a qualified individual
0: you're here all right well again thank you very much everybody for listening i think this is going to be the last one of 2020 unless I get super motivated next week before Christmas and do one more if that's the case I hope everyone has a happy holiday season and a great new year let's all hope that 2021 gets a lot better for all of us and until next time keep the pin in the shackle son you know your father was a rigger a rigger was he son The shoes you have to fill are bigger, as big as can be.